you're listening to Just One of the Guys, the show where the host never dressed up like the singer from the opening song. Honest. Even though he grew up in the 80s, never dressed like him. I'm totally serious. Okay, maybe I did. Friday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Sean Eagle, and my job on the show, as always, is to give you coverage of the Green Lantern comics, starting with the books that came out in June of 1990 and ending with the books that ended, obviously, in November 2004, while all the time putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns. And this time out, we've got a little look at Kyle Rayner specifically, plus a little look at Plastic Man and Booster Gold as we finish up the story from last issue from Green Lantern number 115 and, of course, Green Lantern number 116, where Booster, Plaz, and Kyle find out just what the heck is going on with this supplier character and just what the heck was in the box. Again, not Gwyneth Paltrow's head, nor Marcellus Wallace's soul, some sort of alien artifact that really has no bearing on the plot whatsoever, just kind of a reason to have Plastic Man and Booster Gold in the book. It's not a bad story, and it's not a bad reasoning for having the two in the book, so I'll give it a pass. But what I won't give a pass is Annual Number 5 of Green Lantern. Not that it's a bad one, oh no no no. It is far superior to the previous annuals, and I think you'll really enjoy this one. It's got a couple of tales that, well might have been inventory stories from the old Green Lantern core days, but they're just such great stories that I can't wait to get to them. So, what I'm going to do now is play a couple of promos like I usually do, get ready to read a few more emails after the break, and then after that, we'll head right on in to Green Lantern number let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. 
But now we're ready to cover the post-Death and Return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. And we're back. So, let's go ahead and do what we always do at this time. Well, what we always do at this time, provided I have emails from any wonderful listeners. Yep, that's right. Jump into the Just One of the Guys email bag and pick out some digital letters. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And my first letter today comes from fellow podcaster Mr. Michael Bradley, host of the Superman Batman podcast, a podcast that covers, oddly enough, episodes or issues of comics that have Superman and Batman in them, mostly from the, the series World's Finest. It's got a lot of Bob Haney stuff in it, so take that for what you will. Anyway, Michael Bradley writes with the title Episode 110, and he says, With apologies to Thomas DJ, 10 statements about Just One of the Guys, Episode 110, dated 2014. Number one, Golden Years? I approve. Doubly so, because it wasn't the Marilyn Manson cover. Well, thankfully, I have not heard the Marilyn Manson cover of Golden Ears, and if anyone tries to screw with David Bowie, he should get kicked in the shins. Repetitively. Don't screw with Bowie. Number two, Emily was a great guest, but her uncomfortable reaction to the quote-unquote blow-up doll art made me uncomfortable, and I couldn't even see the art. Michael B. Glad, the artwork by Banks and Austin on a lot of the female characters when they have shock reactions is incredibly uncomfortable. Just trust me on this. Number three. On Earth 3, we will all host Rob Liefeld podcast. Which is just another reason that I'm glad that Earth 3 does not exist. And if it does continue to exist in the uh, New 52 with, you know, Power Ring and Ultraman coming into the universe, it's another reason why Earth 3 should have died in the crisis. Number four. The cast of The Magnificent Seven would have made for one ridiculously amazing Green Lantern Corps movie. Ooh, I agree with that. Go ahead, think about it. The Awesome would the awesome would make a grown man weep. I agree. In their prime, Steve McQueen, Ewell Brenner, Robert Vaughn, and Charles Bronson ring-slinging and helping oppressed alien races defend their planets? Yes, please, and twice on Sunday. I can't disagree. To, to see them as... Even if they were... In their prime at this era where we could digitize them into different characters, say a Salak or a uh, Aris Chumik or a, a Kilowog type character, seeing those actors portray some Green Lanterns and going out and just doing a Magnificent Seven type movie sounds like it would be made of awesomeness. Number five. Have I told you that I love that some time has passed has become a recurring and subtle gag on your show? Thanks for carrying it on. Well, thank you for actually originating it on Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I just found it kind of humorous that it was... Well, originally it was placed in the radio shows as a sort of tagline to continue on from the previous episode. 
But I like the way that you used it, and I thought, you know, unfortunately, since Thrilling Adventures didn't continue on, I'd use it occasionally on my shows, and I, I'm glad that it's been used to good comedic effect. Number six, Sean, you know you're my friend, but I don't think I've had a more vocal and incredulously indignant response to anything you've ever said than I did your your comment about Jack Kirby, quote-unquote, needing Stan Lee. However, you're welcome to your opinion. This is America, and you're allowed to be wrong. Okay. Yeah, I did comment that I think Stan Lee and Jack Kirby worked better together than Jack Kirby apart. I'm taking it on the face of those Fantastic Four issues, the first hundred and some. Those were stellar. After that, Kirby got weird, in my opinion. Not to say that the Fourth World stuff wasn't amazing on its own, but sometimes I think the group of Kirby and Lee still was probably a more impressive thing than either one on their own. But again, yes, like you said, everyone is entitled to your opinions, and mine very frequently are probably wrong. As pretty much shown from my uh, feelings about the new version of Star Trek, but we'll, we'll not get into that. Continuing on, number seven, I wish I had more to say about the stories, but there you go. Yeah, the Green Lantern story with Jade and Alan was... Okay, it had Connor in it. That was fine. But the new core story I thought was really good. Uh, like I've said before, if you haven't checked out the new core and you can find it in the dollar bins or the cheapy bins, go check it out. It's a really good prestige format book and another book uh, written by Chuck Dixon, which will kind of tie into something we'll be doing later in the show. Number eight, if Green Lantern Light ever makes it to 110 episodes, I'm using that clip. Yes, I screwed up and initially said that the podcast was Green Lantern's Light. I obviously was thinking about, you know, hosting on that again, maybe someday. So hopefully you guys will eventually get back, get the group back together and do another, oh, what, uh, 107 episodes, maybe? Well, no, uh, like 103 episodes. So there you go. Number nine. Wait, did she just say she bought a comic in 2002 and then high school happened? And then, and then, we are old. Yeah, there was a bit of a generation gap. You know, hearing her not knowing anything about these 90s comics did kind of make me feel awkward. But she is knowledgeable. She was incredibly knowledgeable about it. And she was incredibly forgiving for me bringing her on to cover a Green Lantern, Green Arrow crossover which really wasn't all that great, so I, I have to appreciate Emily for at least indulging me in this way. I mean, but to be to be fair, she's going to come back to cover the comic that she says is one of her favorites, so I'm looking forward to that here in a couple of months. And rounding it out, number 10, no, really, Emily was a great guest. Have her back soon. I would love to have her back. I'm not certain how interested she would be in talking about the Green Lantern comics, except for the one that she voiced an opinion on doing. Uh, obviously, that's going to be number 150, and that'll be coming up when we do episode 150. So I will definitely have her on there. She was just a blast to work with. I I love getting to work with other podcasters on the show. It it enhances the conversation I have. It gives it a back and forth, and especially with Emily, who has really no basis for these comics, it's interesting to get her sort of fresh take on it and how someone who wasn't around or wasn't into collecting at that time can give their opinion of what's going on and how it differs and how it's similar to your opinions. It's, it's always a fun time to have people like that on the show. But Michael, thank you for writing in. Our next letter comes from Robert Ward, and there's no subject line to the letter, but it starts out with the obvious obligatory greeting of Dear Sean. It's been a while since I've emailed, but your most recent episode, number 111, made me have to jump on and email as soon as possible. In said episode, you once again plug the mashup Iron Lantern and how your listeners should find a copy if they don't have one. Well, funny thing, the day before I listened to episode 111, I actually read Iron Lantern and decided to email my reaction. 
This year, I was actually able to attend my first true convention, C2E2. Oh, cool. Where I uh, really ended up spending way too much on cheap comic books. I, I'm certain there are people who say that you can never spend too much on cheap comic books. Anyway, going back to the email, he says, Establishing the financial theory that cheap books are the better books, amen, brother. I hunted for any books that caught my attention and was lucky enough to find some really great books, including Iron Lantern, for only 50 cents. Awesome. He says, I jumped in joy. I jumped for joy. My friend who was with me just didn't understand. As a newer trades-only reader, he just rolled his eyes oblivious to the gold I was holding. Yeah, well... The trades are neat, but sometimes these back issues are just fun as heck. The comic itself, he says, was a little silly with the mashup names like Halle, Happy Kalmaku and Stuart Rhodes, but overall, I too found it to be just a wonderful read. It was truly, it was truly fun comic in its setup and action. I don't know why, but seeing Hector, Madame Mask, slash Star Sapphire, and of course the biggie, <laughs> Mandarin Estro. Yes, ah, was just so satisfying that it was almost perfect. I really want to track down some more of the books in the series since that was the only one that I saw the whole time. Well, that's disappointing that that's the only amalgam book out there that you found at the convention. I would hope that their printing run was a bit bigger and you might be able to find them, you know, for relatively cheap. But keep a keep on the lookout for them. I've heard a lot of good stuff about like Super Soldier. The mashup between Captain America and Superman was really good, so yeah, check that out. Uh, he continues on saying, Now I would like to gush about some of the other stuff I got, and while the cheap books I bought two weeks prior at the, another gathering, but instead I will only write about two more, ones I particularly blame you for. Oops. Picks are included as attachments for references. Number one was a Guy Gardner shirt. I saw this in the con program and instantly made it the very first stop at the convention so I could get one. They say it's a new 52, but all I know is it's one of the best Green Lanterns ever, and that's all that matters. And he's got an image of the shirt, and it's essentially just a green t-shirt with, instead of having the Green Lantern symbol on the chest, it's got the vest, sort of the vest of Guy Gardner on there. It looks really cool. I'm going to have to go buy one, because my, my Green Lantern shirt's getting a little worn out, and I really, I really don't want to have to buy a Green Lantern shirt that is a Big Bang Theory promoted Green Lantern shirt. I know there's probably not much difference, but my Green Lantern shirt I got from the Justice League store at Six Flags Over Texas. It was a WB, you know, Warner Brothers type shirt, so it really had nothing associated with the Big Bang Theory. It was long before the Big Bang Theory came out, so I consider it to be a Green Lantern shirt. And now that they have a Guy Gardner shirt, I need to get that. Going back to the email number two, finally a bit of treasure. I don't collect toys, but I was really hoping to find at least one reasonably priced action figure. Maybe a quote-unquote retro-action DC superheroes. And sure enough, towards the end of the day, next to Hacksaw Jim Duggan, okay, was a toy booth that had three of the four retro-action DC superheroes. And I had to snatch up a Guy Gardner. Oh, cool. Basically, it's Amigo, but not. It only cost me five bucks that's a good price, but I'm more than happy to display it on one of my shelves. Guy isn't the most attractive guy out there, but cool as hell, I think. <laughs> I have to agree, and the it's it's kind of neat. The dolls are, yes, they're basically sort of faux Miko figures. The sculpt on the face is a little bit more New 52 rather than the uh, Giffen de Mateus JLI Guy Gardner, but it's the Guy Gardner uniform for that uh, timeline. And the... Uh, the image looks very much like a Terry McGuire. Uh, the the cardstock in the back looks like a very much a Terry McGuire image of Guy. So I, I like it. Anyway, he finishes up, and all of this wouldn't have happened if you didn't decide to host a Green Lantern podcast that showcased Kyle and Guy. Your show really made me appreciate the character and turned him into my favorite GL. So, like you said, you were partially to blame. Um, send me a bill for the purchases, and I'll refund you through the. Uh, Demonsicor account. Yeah, that'll happen. Anyway, he finishes up saying, keep up the great work, Robert. Well, Robert, thank you for writing in. Those were some really cool finds. I've got to go hunt down that Guy Gardner shirt. And I'm not a big toy collector either, but that's a pretty cool Mego doll. And if I could find that for cheap, I wouldn't mind owning a Guy Gardner figure. I don't really have all that many action figures or, you know, dolls or whatever. 
But that might be one that I'd be willing to get. But that does it for email this time. Thank you, folks, for writing in. Again, if you'd like to write in, the email address for the show is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. The information will be at the end of the show as well, along with uh, other things that I talk about. But right now, let's talk about Green Lantern comics, specifically Green Lantern number 116. Green Lantern 116 had a cover date of September 1999 and a release date of July 14, 1999. The cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada, and the title was Machinations, Misconceptions, and Revelations. The writer was Dan Jurgens, penciler was Tom Lyle, inker was Andrew Peepoy, letterer was Willie Schubert, colors and separations were by Rob Schwager, the assistant editor was Harvey Richards, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. Our story opens with a recap of the goings-on of last issue, Kyle waking to find a strange box delivered to his apartment, a group of armored goons breaking in to retrieve it, and Kyle, Booster Gold, and Plastic Man teaming up to switch out Plaz with the box so Kyle and Booster could find out just what was so important about the arid package. But upon opening the box, the green and the gold find that it contains... a glowy ball. Surprised about all the trouble the quote-unquote supplier went through to get the item, Kyle rings up some Kirby tech to try and analyze it, and finds out that aside from being an unknown alloy that generates a small amount of heat, it's nothing more than a shiny softball. Booster feels a bit bummed about the discovery, as he hoped to trade the bobble in for fortune and glory, Dr. Jones. This blasé attitude irks Kyle, who comes to the realization that this whole mess could have been avoided if Booster and Beetle hadn't dishonestly used JLA teleporter technology for their own delivery venture. After threatening to tell Batman about the misuse, Cal and Booster head out to try and find their colleague, Plastic Man. However, our heroes might want to expedite their search, as we see Plastic Man being perforated by flaming spikes by the supplier. Despite the torture, Plaz doesn't give up any info on the package's whereabouts. But before the supplier can up the waterboarding session to 11, Green Lantern and Booster Gold break into the building and demand to hear the supplier's... D demands the conniving capitalist claims to cater to clients of an extraterrestrial nature and orders Green Lantern to return the Augalict post haste. That's the shiny ball. The heroes decline the offer, and thus the Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights observed, breaks out between our heroes and the supplier's men. After a brief interlude with the owner of Dooley's Pub, Plastic Man grabs the supplier and wraps him up in his own stretchy body in hopes of getting him to surrender. But the supplier has an ace up his sleeve as he tells the heroes that his armored warriors are the mind-controlled homeless people who he wouldn't hesitate killing if the leaguers don't meet his demands. Wanting to save the lives of these hundreds of innocents, Kyle offers up the Augalict, and the supplier short-circuits the mind-control devices, freeing the cybernetic slaves, then buggers off for parts unknown. Crisis averted, Kyle mentions that the Augalict he gave away was just a construct copy, and that he's hidden the real Augalict under a bucket on a nearby roof. However, when the trio tip the bucket, they find the orb gone, leaving Kyle to accuse Bo Booster of making off with it. Booster says he had nothing to do with the disappearance, but begs Kyle not to tell Batman about his quote-unquote appropriation of JLA transport attack. Meanwhile, as Guy Gardner prepares to open the Warrior's Bar, a glass-encased Manhunter robot slowly stirs. This was a decent conclusion to the story from last issue. Again, despite Booster and Plaz having more heroing experience than Kyle, Cal was the one to take the lead and be far more mature in the story. Granted, this is his book, and the people he has to be more mature than are Plastic Man and Booster Gold, so there is that. Tom Lyle's art style, I swear I'm not trying to rhyme there, is a bit more cartoony or simple, kind of along the lines of a more realistic Rick Burchett or Mike Paraback. It's good art. It's a nice change from the Daryl Banks-type uh, hyper-realism or very realistic art, but not as 
well, I don't want to say cartoony, but it's even different than Paul Pelletier's art. It's a good, it's, it's good art, but it's not anything that I think it's going to make you have to run out and buy this issue. It's a good issue. That's, that's pretty much what I'll say about it. But getting to more specific notes on the issue, we'll start out, of course, as we usually do with cover, and it's another good one by uh, Jergens and Austin, depicting a stretched out and it looks like burned through Plastic Man. Uh, it's kind of neat with the Plastic Man's body just basically sort of taffy-like pulling through all these pipes and railings and whatnot and what I guess we could assume be the supplier's warehouse. Sure, why not? The neat thing about it is, if you look at some of the areas of Plastic Man, it looks like there have been holes burnt through him. Like, literal holes where, actually, parts of his body around where those holes are, are melting away. And I don't know all that much about Plastic Man, but I'm wondering, compared to, say, Elongated Man or even Mr. Fantastic, if Plastic Man actually has more of a body that is in some essences, plastic. The way I see Mr. Fantastic and Elongated Man is that they're just guys who can stretch their body to do different things. Plastic Man seems to be that his body is sort of just like a giant sentient blob of silly putty that he can make anything happen. And it would make sense that if he was skewered by something that heated it up, it would actually melt his body. So I don't know all that much about Plastic Man, but uh, I'll... If that's the uh, case for the character, it it makes sense that he'd have this sort of melted look where he was burned through. Page one, a couple of issues back, Michael Bradley, who was on the show, said that in issue 114, he really liked the sort of pre-credit sequence that was used in the book. And here's another good example of that. It's the stereotypical last time on Green Lantern type thing that uh, basically recaps the book for people who may not have been able to pick up the previous issue. I like that in the story, and I like the way it's done here with just a sort of, well, it's a seven-panel grid layout that essentially encompasses what went on in the previous story. So, good opening page. Page four, I mentioned in my synopsis that the tech that Kyle creates to try and determine what this ogolict or this little sphere is supposed to be is very highly influenced by Kirby. In fact, it almost, to some extent, looks like Orion's sort of jet cycle thing that he would have. Like I said, it's very implicitly derived from the design of Kirby, so I like that in this book. However, moving on to page five, from the sort of elaborate Kirby tank, we go to a bit more, not really remedial, but not just, not quite as dynamic artwork here. Lyle's artwork seems to be a little limited here, uh, as we only see essentially profile and straight-on shots of both Booster and Kyle in this. You know, it's it's not saying that Lyle is a bad artist, but here on this page, it like I said, it's just very limited. He's showing the characters from the side, or he's showing them front on. It's not the artwork is bad, it just it makes it feel that Lyle is kind of, kind of limited in his range. Page 9, panel 2. I find this kind of amusing, but it comes from Plastic Man, so it's an amusing bit as he's sort of a comedic relief character in here. Plastic Man is being tortured by the supplier with the spikes burning through his body, and he gives the stereotypical when you're under dress uh, thing of name, rank, and serial number, except this time he gives it as name, Plastic Man, rank, only when I don't use deodorant and cereal was bran flakes. So I thought that was a little clever, a little clever play on the uh, whole giving away what you're giving away information, whatever you're being tortured bit thing. I can use words. Page 11, panel four, as Kyle and Booster go up to the supplier's roof to try and figure out a way in this image of Kyle in this panel looks kind of, well, it doesn't look bad. It just looks like they replaced Kyle Rayner with Clint Eastwood because he's got that sort of talking out of the side of his mouth, sort of slanty, squinty thing. You know, the very Clint Eastwood-like thing. Like, he's like, I'll go ahead, make my day, sort of punk thing. So, there you go. 
page 13. Now, I don't know whether the supplier is a character that's ongoing in the DC universe, whether he showed up in her, in any other books or not. But if you don't know what the character is like, the best way to describe him would be kind of an amalgam of the Kingpin, Vandal Savage, and like a 70s pimp with that badass cane he's got. Uh, it's a unique style, and I've got to assume if Dan Jurgens created the character, he's probably used him in other books, but I really couldn't be certain. If anyone knows, let me know about it. You know, I could go do a Google search at DC Indexes or whatever DC's Wikia, but laziness. Page 17, we get a little bit more fourth wall breaking here with whom I'm assuming is Kevin Dooley opening a Dooley's Bar and Grill outside of Metropolis. Now, we've seen these businesses in other books, and we've seen the Dooley's Bar, I think, in, uh, where was it? I thought there was one in Hawaii when uh, Charlie Niemeyer came on to cover that issue of Superboy that we did where there was a crossover between Kyle and Superboy. So the Dooley's Bar isn't isn't a unique thing only to this book. But I think having Kevin Dooley, who I'm assuming this is supposed to be in the book, is. Now, he's with some woman. That could be his wife or his girlfriend. I'm not really certain. But I've got to assume that this has to be Kevin Dooley inserted into this book. And then finally on page 22, the so the big thing that the supplier was looking for never got into his hands or was recovered. So I have no idea whether this will be resolved in a later issue or whether this will be resolved at all. Plus, uh, we get to the final panel and... I don't know, Guy, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to keep an intact Munhunter robot in your bar. You know, it'd be like Planet Hollywood having a fully functional Terminator on display, and all it needed was a little juice, so... Yeah. But having a bar full of Green Lantern artifacts, you know, maybe you having a Manhunter robot would work, but I think he would have taken precautions to make certain that... There was no way it could power itself up. Just have the shell of it, no internal components. Oh well. But overall, another good book. Really enjoyable. It's nice to have Dan Jurgens writing a book, and I think next time out we'll have Ron Mars back, so looking forward to that as well. I'm also looking forward to seeing what kind of ads they have in this book. Let's see what the last of the 90s has to offer. The front and side cover is for another advertisement is another advertisement for that Coca-Cola thing, the IYDKYDG.com or whatever they had with the bowling balls and all that. I guess you can set up your own Coca-Cola hotmail or not hotmail voicemail box. Okay, yeah, because Coca-Cola is going to call you up and leave you voicemail, I guess. Whatever. Then after that is an ad for Spree, which if you don't remember, they're basically... They're like hard candy-coated sweet tarts, and the advertisement kind of a creepy one. It's a kid with his mouth open really wide, with his tongue sticking out, and a yellow post-it on the note, yellow post-it note on his tongue saying "Kick me." So, at least they didn't uh, replace the uh, first letter with an L. So that'd be creepy. The next page is an ad advertisement for the Nintendo 64 version of Command and Conquer. I believe this is a real-time strategy game that basically you pit army forces against opposing army forces. And the ad has a sort of brain that's made up of various colors of clay. Kind of weird. Then a couple more pages in is an advertisement for, well, the underrated and very quirky superhero comedy, maybe, called Mystery Men. Now, I actually went and saw this in the theater. Of course, I saw it with a couple of friends, and I think we were really the only people in the movie. The movie kind of bombed because I don't think it really knew what it wanted to be. It was enjoyable enough, and uh, especially William H. Macy as, I want to say, the shoveler, and uh, Hank Azaria as the Blue Raja, I think, were really funny, but I've never been a big fan of Ben Stiller. A lot of people have told me that his early work, like on the Ben Stiller show, has been hilarious, but 
overall, he seems to play the same character in his movies, just sort of the awkward guy who gets angry, which was, I guess, sort of started in this role where he plays an awkward guy who gets angry and then has superpowers. So there you go. The next page is an ad for the mini disc. Again, the failed version that Sony tried to put out before MP3. So we've talked about this before. And then the next ad is a very blue green hued uh, advertisement for Powerade saying out here, you either take your game higher or you take up a new game and has a bunch of kids running around in front of a camera that's obviously got a very dark blue filter over it, playing football or rugby or something. Who knows? Then the next pat, but the next page is an ad for JNCO, which I guess are shoes, maybe, or pants, or bicycles. I don't know. This is a really. It's got a BMX kid with a helmet on riding a bicycle up the side of a ramp doing stunts and everything unless you know what's going on in the unless you know what the company is about this ad really doesn't tell me what it's trying to sell is it trying to sell bicycles is it trying to sell clothing is it trying to sell you know boarding for ramps i don't i don't get it i'm just not hip then a couple more pages in is an advertisement for the PC CD-ROM game and the PlayStation game Driver, You Are the Wheelman, which, if I remember, I might have played this on the PC. It's essentially, well, it's not quite Need for Speed, It's, but it's on that same idea where you drive a car really fast and try to avoid the police, so... Yeah, I guess we're coming in that era of games, of the Need for Speed type game, so interesting looking. I know it spawned a a bunch of sequels, and I think it might even have spawned a really crappy movie. Not not Drive, the one with Ryan Gosling, but I want to say maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? But then, man, there's a lot of ads in this book. There's an ad for Starburst that has a very trippy sort of tie-dye type thing where someone's looking into a mystic tie-dye portal and out of it comes a kid holding up a bag of Starburst hard candy. So it says that it lasts longer than your attention span. So we're getting into the ADD era of people playing too much video games and not getting off my lawn. And again, speaking of video games, here's an odd advertisement. It's an actual fold-out page in the comic. One side is for the game Star Ocean, which I guess is another Square Enix game. But then the other side is for Ape Escape. Both of these games are for the PlayStation 1. And it's kind of weird. I haven't for a long time seen... In fact, I don't think I've really ever seen a fold-out page in a comic, so... Obviously, Sony was paying a bunch of money for this because they got an entire extra page, or actually extra two pages in the comic, just for their ad. So, there you go. Way way to go, Sony. The next advertisement is for the Three Musketeers ad, with the various different ethnicities of musketeers fighting for all pumped up for some non-stop action. It's huge, starring fluffy, pumped-up chocolate. Which, again could possibly be a metaphor for something really, really dirty. Then the page following that, it's another advertisement for Sprite, which you can cut out the Sprite bottle and the caption underneath it, which says, Being a feared radiation mutant isn't as glamorous as it looks. For one thing, you've got to buy your own Sprite. So, yeah, don't cut up your comics, kids. You know this. Then instead of a DC Direct or even a... I don't think they have a... Yeah, it doesn't look like they have a letters page here. They've got an advertisement for Hey Kids Comics, neither the uh, podcast nor the Rob Kelly book, but it's just basically a couple of disembodied heads telling you to recycle this comic. But not like recycle newspaper or paper bags. Why not give the book to a friend or an enemy for that matter? Maybe they won't stay your enemy. Interesting. Then it's got a advertisement for Mike Carlin, the executive editor of DC Universe, and the eight things that an executive editor does. 
And it has an advertisement for Day of Judgment. When hell freezes over, all the DC heroes and heroines participate in the saving of the world, as well as the redemption of two longtime DC heroes, all throughout September from DC Comics, where comics come from. Hmm, I wonder if I should talk about Day of Judgment. I wonder if there's anyone important who had anything to do with that. Hmm. After that, the next ad they have is for the Six Flag Parks, which are all around the United States. And they've got one in Darien Lake, Six Flags America, Kentucky Kingdom, Six Flags Over Texas, Astroworld, Fiesta Town, Six Flags in Elitch Gardens, Six Flags Marine World. So there's a ton of Six Flags parks, mostly promoting the WB characters, Bugs Bunny and the Looney Tunes characters, and now the uh, DC superheroes as well. So. There was some fun. The back inside cover is an advertisement for the Nintendo 64 game World Driver Championship, which I guess is just a race driving game. Never played it. They say it's the Gran Turismo of the N64, so obviously trying to crash in or cash in on the Gran Turismo phase. And the back outside cover is an advertisement for Milk Again, saying it better be ice cold for stone cold, as we've got the very bulgy, stone-cold Steve Austin holding two cups of milk right underneath his pectoral muscles, which is kind of creepy if you ask me. But I wouldn't say that to Steve Austin himself because he would probably pound me into a bloody pulp. But that does it for the issue. I'm going to go take a break here real quick, go get something to drink, and after I play these promos, I will be back to cover what is possibly my favorite of the Green Lantern annuals we've covered so far. Green Lantern Annual Number five. Kalabak, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Ditrick, Dana, Rizia, and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water Podcast. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old Jade Jaws at www.incredibleholksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pad Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, Deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb or anal leakage.
And we're back. So let's go ahead and jump into it. This is Green Lantern Annual number five. It had a cover date of 1996 and was released on April 25th of 1996. Thank you, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. The cover price was $2.95 US and $4.25 Canada. The Earth is dead. Those who once might have called it home are long scattered to the endless stars. But in that scattering on a thousand different worlds and by a thousand different ways, Earth's greatest legends live on. When civilization on Earth was still in its infancy, the Green Lanterns were already honored throughout the entire universe as a symbol for something good. At one time, there were many. Earth was home to some of the best. Then there was one. The power ring was passed to another, and then another. These are two stories of that passing. A symbol lives, an oath is remembered, so the legend of the green light may ever shine. The Value of I was written by Chuck Dixon, with art by Enrique Alcantana, Alcatena, sorry. Letters were by Dan Necrosis, and colors were by Pat Garahay. The editors for the entire book were Kevin Dooley and Eddie Braganza. Rock Aranya, the current Green Lantern, has been trailing a group of alien criminals known as the Barukas, who are known plunderers of worlds. The Barukas fire every weapon they have at the Emerald Space Cop, and as luck would have it, a specific blast of energy eventually fells the lantern. As the downed GL plummets to the surface of a nearby planet, one of the inhabitants, a Zulfi named Ta, witnesses the crashing green object and runs toward the area of impact, shirking his duty of delivering messages to the Zillif Congress. Reaching the crater, Ta sees the dying lantern, who begs him to take the ring, charge it from the battery, and save his world from the oncoming Barukas attack. Knowing what he must do, Ta takes the lantern and ring to the conference house to let the politicians know that there is now a way to defend themselves from this onslaught. But petty bureaucracy and a desire for absolute equality wins out over having one person be viewed as greater than the collective. The Congress tells Ta to leave the battery and ring with them so that they might debate what should be done with it as they order Ta to vacate their council chambers. Dejected, Ta walks home amid the devastation to his wife, whom he asked to play him a soothing song. But unlike the many times before, Ta fails to be calmed by the tune. Back at the Congress, much debate has taken place, and a vote is brought to the people. The Congress feels that the lantern ring would give one person too much power, placing that person ahead of the many. And since this can never be the way, the Congress has decreed that Ta should take the lantern and the ring to the Acid Sea and have it destroyed. Woefully, Ta makes the trek to the Acid Sea as the Barukas continue to devastate his planet. But just as he is about to toss the weapon in the sea, Ta says, Screw it, and puts on the ring and goes to delivering the mother of all beatdowns to the invading aliens. As Ta is routing the renegade aliens, the people of Zillov begin chanting his name and honoring him as a hero. Ta begins to deliver a speech, saying that the ring wasn't what allowed him to defeat his enemies, but the realization that each individual has the power to achieve greatness. Of course, the Zillify misunderstand Ta, and feel that it would be best to drop their whole groupthink, Will of the People methods, and elect Ta as king of all Zillif, much to his chagrin. And in the final scene, we witness a dejected and beleaguered Ta sitting on a throne forced to make decisions for every citizen of the planet. What we've got here in this story is essentially Chuck Dixon skewering the entire idea of groupthink, socialism, political correctness, and politics all in one shot. The idea that the individual can accomplish more when personally motivated is actually something that I subscribe to. And to have a story that takes a jab at all the namby pamminess of the era, remember this came out right at the height of the Clinton, I feel your pain, it takes a village era, I can't help but really, really enjoy it. And even if you do fall into the idea that a socialized society is the way to go, 
I think you'd be hard pressed to say that the way these people are following that idea is anything other than completely wrongheaded. Socialism as an ideal might be a good way, but when it's implemented in this way where the bureaucracy dictates everything that you do, it's just it's just not right in my opinion. Of course, there may be other people out there who have varying different opinions, and I hate to get political on the show, but unfortunately this is Chuck Dixon kind of taking a jab at it in the book, and as I'm planning on covering it, I'm having to talk about it. But there's more than just politics to talk about in this book. There's some really good art here. Starting with the cover, Bill Willingham does the cover, and he does a good job with it depicting the aliens in this issue, as well as a unique-looking statue of the then-current Green Lantern Kyle Rayner, thus reinforcing the fact that this was supposed to be the passing on of the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern ring. However, when you read a bit more into the stories, you can kind of get the ideas that these might have been culled or maybe even completely swiped from an inventory drawer from the Green Lantern Corps quarterly books or the Green Lantern Corps books of uh, the late 80s, or sorry, the mid-80s, because there are a couple of elements in here that just wouldn't work if this was Kyle's Green Lantern ring. And one of those elements is pretty readily apparent on page four, panel three. It's It's kind of odd because, like I said, if this is supposed to be the passing of Kyle's ring... In this panel, it looks like the Green Lantern rock, when he gets hit, is getting hit by a yellow beam, which causes him to have to crash into the planet. Now, it's not specifically said that it's a yellow beam. In fact, later in on the later on in the book, it says that it was a solar energy. So, yeah, take that for what you will. Page 5, we get introduced to the Zillify, or the Zillify, the aliens that Ta and the rest of his people are. The best way I can describe them is, if you ever saw the movie Mac and Me, the character of Mac the alien, that's kind of facially what Ta looks like. Kind of bug-eyed, a very sort of, oh, almost E.T.-like looking face, but not the sort of cylindrical head type thing. And the weird thing is... It, on their hand, it's just a single sort of pointed finger. It's just one finger, and I'm certain that probably has some symbolism to it, you know, of the individuality or something, but I'm not trying to read too deeply into it. Then on page 8, this is where Chuck Dixon's, I've got to assume, sort of disdain for the political process at least for the petty bickering of the political process, probably comes into play in this book. This is just pretty much an evisceration of the squabbling and pettiness that we see if we are just to turn on C-SPAN for any amount of time. You get these petty little aliens, and they're very, I hate to say it, almost French revolutionary type uniforms they look very renaissance with the ruffled collars and things like that and very large type stovepipe pads it's it's essentially just bashing the whole idea of political discourse and how it's become essentially one side against the other and very much on this planet well not this planet as earth but this planet in the comic is just groupthink, and that everything is dictated by the will of not anyone being a greater individual than another. And that's kind of sad. Pages 9 and 10, we get the introduction to Tao, which is Ta's wife, or I assume that's Ta's wife. The depiction of her is very childlike. Her face has that very, very infant-like face, so it is kind of uncertain whether it's his wife or if it's his daughter, but it's someone that he has a companionship with, and there you go. Moving on to page 12. I don't get why planets have these incredibly destructive areas where you can just walk up to them. I mean, 
lava pits, lakes of acid, bottomless pits, and so on. This just seems to be a convenient trope of an alien world. Oh, we need to destroy someone. Well, go put it in the Sarlacc pit. Oh, we need to uh, take care of this ring. Oh, go throw it in Mount Doom. It'll be fine. It'll belt anything. Yeah, eh, convenience. But then on page, or I'm sorry, on the fourth panel of this page, we get the one little minor thing that kind of takes me out of the book for a minute. Chuck Dixon writes Ta saying, well, the way sucks. And throughout all of this, the, the dialogue is very, like I say, groupthink. It's very the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few type thing going on. But here it just feels a little out of place of like Chuck Dixon interjecting his own personal speech into this story. So it's a minor thing, but it doesn't ruin the story for me. Then on the next page, page 13, where Ta finally realizes that it's his individuality that's going to save him and his people. The the artwork really sells it because it's close-ups of his face as he's reciting the oath. And when he gets to the line, beware my power, Green Lantern's light, the emphasis in uh, in the sentence is on the word my, and the look on his face is that of determination and and knowledge that it's not the will of the people that makes people great. It's individuals going out and succeeding on their own. This group think thing has been leading them down, and uh, again, I need to stop getting into the whole political shenanigans of this. However, on page 18, we get it's not easy to change the minds of an entire people who've been collectively thought to think, or collectively, I guess, ingrained to think that the idea of the group outweighs the individual. So when there is someone who shows their leadership ability and their individuality, this group of people think that this is the one who will answer all of their questions. And it's it's a great sort of twist ending that Ta, the one who became this individual who broke away from the group, is now saddled with being the person who who solves all the problems for the group. And all the problems, including the petty ones, like what should I wear for my wedding, which is one of the things in the book. It's It's a brilliant skewering. It's a great piece of satire by Chuck Dixon. Definitely. Definitely one of the better stories in the Green Lantern annuals. But that's not it. We have one more story to read in the annual, and our next story is entitled Nobler in the Mind. And this one was written by Len Wein, penciled by Bill Willingham, inked by Robert Campanella, lettered by Bob Lappin, and colored by Pat Garahay. In space, no one can hear laser beams fired by staging strike ships at Green Lantern Elka Sum Zareman. Serena. Weird names. The four-armed half-snake GL is hunting down these murderous foes until the ships fire upon him with yellow energy. Wait, I mean solar energy, because this certainly isn't an inventory story from the Tales of the Green Lantern Corps backup, where yellow would still be a weakness. Anywho, the injured lantern has the ring direct him to the nearest inhabited planet, where he crash lands and begins the search for a new bearer of the ring. Fortunately, there are plenty of bipedal chicken people that could easily fulfill the role of Green Lantern. Unfortunately, each one of them he scans to determine if it is fearless faints as soon as the beam scans them. In fact, the entirety of the planet seems to be populated by nothing but a fainting bunch of girly men. Except for one. The ring tells Alka that he might not like the choice of replacement, but the Dying Lantern says that time is of the essence and the next lantern must be brought to him now. And with that, the ring deposits Perdu, a very easily distracted chicken man, to become the next lantern and defend his planet. Taking the ring, and choosing a suitable uniform, and charging his ring with a somewhat unfocused oath, Perdu bandages Elka and goes off to have a word with the pesty Stagians. After a bit of absent-minded astrogeology, Perdu meets up with the Stagian fleet from the beginning of the story, and is fascinated by the ships, thinking that they're an entirely new species of flitterby to be catalogued with his new Green Lantern powers. But unfortunately for Perdue, 
These flitter bys opened fire on him, destroying the construct magnifying glass he was using to examine them. This irks our poultry protagonist, who flies around the ships, causing them to track their beams into a crossfire, destroy most of the ships, and including the commanders. Realizing that they'd been defeated, the Stachians make a hasty retreat, leaving Perdu to wave a quiet goodbye. Back on the planet, Perdu tells the recovering Elqua that he's never encountered the Stachians, but he did chase away a nasty species of space flitterby. Elka says that he did a great job as Green Lantern, but Perdu gives the ring back, telling the Lantern that it's more trouble than it's worth. Surprised by the refusal of the most powerful weapon in the universe, Elka takes Perdu back to his home, where the nice doctors place him back in his straitjacket and take him away to be fed. Because the only being without fear on this entire planet was also totally out of his mind. I love this story, even though I'm almost 100% certain that it actually is an inventory story from the old Green Lantern books from the Len Wein era. The art is good with both the snake-like Elka and the chicken people having a very clean look to them, and the twist at the end was well before anything that M. Night Shyamalan came up with, and anything that he ever did, aside maybe from The Sixth Sense. It was really just a fun story, and I I don't really have any that many notes about it because it's a pretty simple tale. Green Lantern crashes on a planet, finds the most heroic person to save the planet. The Green Lantern goes and saves the planet, delivers the ring back, and we find the twist was the person without fear was only without fear because he was completely insane. Great Fun story by Len Wein. Really good artwork. I enjoyed this. It, Out of all the annuals so far, this was actually one of the ones that I picked up when I was collecting. And I would definitely say if you can find it in your back issue bins, go pick it up. Good, good read. But that does it for the issue this time out. Next time on the all-new episode, of course it'll be all-new, I won't be repeating myself, the all-new episode of Just One of the Guys, we're going to be covering Green Lantern number 117, where Kyle has to deal with some more of the Guardian's mistakes. Namely, this time, a rogue manhunter. Plus, he also has to deal with some girl issues. We'll get into that as well. And we're also going to be covering another annual. This time out, of course, the following annual, Green Lantern annual number 5, which was part of the Pulp Heroes annual crossover. We've got some interesting stuff by Jeff Johnson and Ron Mars about Kyle Rayner, sort of a Warlord of Mars type character. No pun on the whole Mars thing. It'll be an interesting read, and I can't wait to get to it, and hopefully you can't wait to get to it either. Hopefully you'll be back in seven days to listen to me rant on about it. Until then, I hope you all have a great weekend, and come back in seven days... I said a couple times before, silly me, for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Have a good weekend, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. 
and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's show was Adam and the Ants with their song, Stand and Deliver, off the album Prince Charming. If you're a big Adam and the Ants fan, and why you would be, I'm not certain I want to know, you can find this album at a myriad number of places. However, the best place to go to, if you wanted to purchase the album, the CD, or the MP3 of the song, would be Amazon.com. And of course, the best way to get to Amazon.com would be through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Go over to 2TrueFreaks.com, click on the banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page, and you'll be transported to Amazon where you could buy the song, the CD, or anything else you'd like. Whether it be a DVD, a movie, a video game, electronics, garage tools, other things. Yeah, I need to script these out better. But whatever you want to buy from Amazon.com, make sure that you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com before you do it. It sends a little bit, a bit of your purchase price back to the 2TrueFreaks site, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So whenever you're wanting to buy something from Amazon.com, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.